Daniel Shirelle is the author of Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of Our World, a memoir on the climate crisis framed as a letter to Shirelle's potential future child. He is a climate movement organizer and has led successful campaigns to phase out coal-fired power plants, divest millions of dollars from the fossil fuel industry, and pass a Green New Deal bill for New York State, legislation that the New York Times called one of the most ambitious climate plans. He's campaign director for the Climate Jobs National Resource Center, where he works with the American labor movement to tackle the climate crisis, reverse income inequality, and win millions of unionized clean energy jobs. The New Yorker and Publishers Weekly named Warmth one of the best books of 2021, and he's a recipient of the Creative Force Foundation's award for igniting positive social change through writing. Daniel Shirell, welcome to Business and Society and One Planet Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Mia. And you're going to read a passage from your book, Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of the World? Will. It happens on a visit to New Orleans for the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. On our final day in New Orleans, the Sandy delegation is invited to take part in Sunday services at a rebuilt Baptist church. The church is more than an hour outside of the city, southeast along the Birdfoot Delta that steps delicately into the sea. The land here is just sediment, washed out the mouth of the Mississippi, and deposited in a loose fan that, even at its highest point, rises only a few feet above the water. We drive down the peninsula in a rented minivan, past ranch homes lofted on 30-foot pylons, and billboards advertising sport fishing expeditions. We drive past a new football field, incidentally the unit of measurement people use to describe coastal erosion around here. One football field lost every hour, apparently. But this one's been shored up with a low earthen berm. The process is driven as much by sea level rise as by the offshore extraction of oil, which causes the land itself to subside. A vicious self-defeating loop, the autophagy of the state's economy, though the oil companies make off handsomely. Katrina is still here too, not as wreckage, but as absence. The whole area looks like it's been wiped clean, of trees, of towns, of most structures. Even on a sunny day, I feel exposed somehow, like we're driving across the surface of a raft. The ground is too flat, the ocean too close. We round a bend and there it is, only a few feet from the wheels, almost exactly level with the land. It is frankly intimidating, like something that could eat you, but happens not to be hungry. After a couple of hours, we arrive at the church. It is small, stiltless, new. The walls are covered in prefab white siding, and a modest steeple rises from the center of the roof. The pastor greets us outside, shaking each of our hands in turn. Inside, the building is also white, and the congregation is dressed in immaculate church clothes, little brooches and polished shoes. We take our seat in the pews, holding our prayer books open in our laps until it's time to stand up and sing. The pastor's sermon that day does not mention the problem by name. Instead, he names the storms, Katrina and Sandy, invoking them like something out of the Bible, like two angels of death summoned to lay waste to the delta. But by the grace of God, he says, we have survived, and our church has been resurrected. And now we sit here once again to deliver praise unto him, he who will greet us when it is our time to ascend. As he speaks, I picture the flood maps, how the place where we now sit will be consumed in under a century, erased by the body of water known as the Gulf, and how indeed this will represent the expansion of another Gulf, between here and there, between past and present, the two no longer separated by a mere sequence of events, but by a literal change of phase, the difference between earth and ocean, and how everyone in the congregation, or their children, or their children's children, will ascend north, and how the buildings that used to be their homes will fade beneath the surface of the Gulf, and how passing over them in a boat decades later it is possible that even the peaks of their roofs will be invisible under water that's been clouded by successive spills of the oil that banished them in the first place. And suddenly everything, the land, the church, the sermon, 
feels charged with this disappearance, like there's another world welling up behind this one. And I grip the edge of the pew as if it might float away, and then everyone intones, Amen. Afterward, the pastor invites all the sandy survivors to the front of the dais. He places his hands on their heads one by one, and in a voice that is so warm and gentle it is practically whisper, he says, Grace be upon you. When the service ends, people step outside into the sun, striking up little pockets of conversation around the parking lot. They loosen their ties and take off their heels. They exchange hugs and hold them for a beat. Babies get hefted from strollers, children weaving in and out of legs. On a screen somewhere far away, there's a pixelated blue eating into the edges of this scene. But for now, the impermanence feels like a kind of ecstasy, and the morning washes out into a long afternoon. When we finally leave, waving goodbye and sliding shut the door of the van, there is a sense that the grace is right there, that, as with so much else, it is already upon us. Thank you. It's so beautiful. And you really bring us to the beauty of the natural world that we're losing and really make us focus with that. It, it renews our fight that we have and that you fight for every day. When did you decide that you needed to write this? I think that realization crystallized over many years, but really came to a head in, in 2018, actually. I'd been organizing in the youth climate movement for about seven or eight years at that point. And I could feel this knot of thought and feeling sort of tightening itself in my chest that had to do with the heaviness of the issue I was taking action on every day. But I didn't really have time to unspool that knot because I was just lost in the trenches of email and conference calls every day. And it felt to me that if I wasn't able to figure out a way to orchestrate a genuine emotional encounter for myself with the enormity of this thing I was meant to be taking action on, then something in me was going to break and I just wouldn't be able to keep doing the work. So there was never a point where it's like, I'm going to write a book. But I did turn to the written word, almost little diary entries, to make psychological and, dare I say, spiritual sense of the crisis that I was dealing with in a thin way every day. Exactly, because I can imagine it can be, for any of us, even peripherally involved in fighting for the environment, so draining and it, the spiritual is drained out of it, I suppose. I think that's true. I think at least to solve the climate crisis, you can't avoid engaging in politics. This politics is basically the arena in which we decide as a society who gets to live and who gets to die and who gets what resources. But being caught in its gears without any sort of support system for humanity, I mean, it just flattens people. And so I guess probably semi-consciously, I was aware of like, if I'm going to continue to engage in this arena, I have to protect my humanity a little bit. I see people who have been in good fights, real dedicated progressives, and not all of them, but a lot of them who have been involved in the policymaking apparatus for three, four, five decades of their career. It all becomes a kind of gate. It gets abstracted from the actual life and death issues behind the laws, and it just becomes a form of ritualized warfare, I guess, that's uh, waged with press releases and legislative text rather than guns and bullets. I think a lot of people are experience a form of trauma there, especially if they're not embedded in the context of a social movement, which can nurture your humanity even as you take political action. But if all they are is like sort of engaged in a nonprofit or working within the government apparatus itself without serious intentional humane sustenance, it's a machine designed for burnout and cynicism. I do know what you mean and you see it, but I do have to say, and you know this as well, there are so many wonderful organizers who have been in decades and they, there's a glow too. And you wonder how they can still maintain the optimism. But I always find that amazing and they've done great things. So I think that it's what becomes dispiriting is that we don't get to see the results. So many words, but where's the modeling? We talk about a circular economy. We talk about reducing emissions, but I just can't see it. It's not tangible and that's depressing. I want to bring Bruce in because you have been moved by Daniel's writing in its early stages, I think even before publication. Hey, Dan. 
Good to see you again. I am in fact moved by the quality of your writing and the heartfelt rumination. I think that you've helped your generation see itself with some hope as well as some urgency. So what I wanted to do is kind of get a sense of your tradition, where you came from, where you're going and how it could help. So credible praise from five major sources so far. Wired says that your book reads like a long conversation with a very thoughtful friend. And so as we talk, I hope you can refer to some of the friends that you acknowledge in the book. Then you have a library journal talking about how you had a way of blithely remaining optimistic instead of fatalistic and that you showed readers that they can play a role in responding to climate rather than just feeling anxiety. And I also think that the Washington Post wrote a very profound claim that I agree with that you awaken a new urgency for reform. So do you feel that you come from the tradition of the social movement, which you referred to that, you know, includes people like um, Gandhi or Martin Luther King, or do you come from a different tradition? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. I guess I'll say this in a very sort of tangible sociological sense. I do come from a lineage that descends from the civil rights movement. So obviously King famously studied in India, brought some of the principles of principled nonviolence back to the U.S. Those principles inform the civil rights movement. And he had a complicated relationship with Malcolm X and with the Nation of Islam, with the Black Panthers, with the Young Lords up in the South Bronx. These were not necessarily political opponents. These were political allies, but they were experimenting with different modes, responses to state oppression. And some of them with property destruction, though not, not, none of them with outright violence, though outright violence was being waged against them, obviously, in the form of court, COINTELPRO and other FBI programs. People like Martin Luther King and behind him, many incredible lieutenants, many women like Grace Lee Boggs and Bayard Rustin, the sort of union of that school of thought with the school of thought from the Panthers sort of then informed, I think, an unsung social movement, but one that was incredibly important that happened in the decade before I was born, which was, of course, the AIDS activism movement all of that. And, you know, the fact that they were able to finally force Ronald Reagan, of all people, to take some public health action to, instead of just ignoring this plague, because it was only happening to queer people. And I have been trained in some of the arts of political campaigning and direct action by some people who were involved in the original round of ACT UP actions in the early 80s. And so in that way, that's how I kind of trace my political lineage. But of course, like any genealogy, it's very complicated and there are other things being threaded into that. And I wish that the progressive movement writ large had a better system of sort of teaching and mentorship. Honestly, we do a lot of trainings, but in terms of if I could point to, oh yeah, this is my mentor and that was their mentor and that was their mentor, you know, established literally like who my political grandparents and great grandparents are. That's a little bit looser. And to some extent, my generation has had to recreate it in their own image and figure out ourselves. Here's this massive problem with the climate movement. We came of age in the nineties where any kind of mobilized left in this country was basically in the wilderness. It was the end of history. There was nothing to do. We had solved it. And so not to mention the fact that the AIDS crisis itself took out a lot of ACT UP leaders who might otherwise have been mentors. So in some ways I identify with a lineage and I've read many of the people I just referenced. In other ways, I was born in a moment where we sort of had to learn ourselves. I think that's a very beautiful answer. It shows that you come from a tradition of social movement and that in addition to all the gifts as a composer and a writer, 
you kind of feel the power of the civil rights movement. You feel the power of ACT UP. In addition, you refer to threads of influence. Maybe you can tell about the tradition of your family, because many of these people who are wanting to play a positive role in climate change are also interested in how you derived your confidence to continue as a writer and as an activist. Mm, whence my confidence? I try not to look at it too closely because by then it might fall asunder. It's just, it's something that I think I've had in me from an early age, right? I don't scare easy, I guess is to say it frankly. And I think one of the scariest things I've ever done in my life is write this book because it forced me to look this crisis in the face and rummage around in the box where I'd put it. And the contents of that box were real grief and rage and, and hope. But I didn't know where that hope came from or how it worked. So it was scary in that way to even look at it right in the face. But I've always had this attitude of like, I'm going to give this my best. I didn't write this book with an audience in mind. Honestly, it's an autotherapeutic process. And then if it speaks to other people on the other end, that's great. But for right now, this is a practice of introspection that I'm engaging with intentionally, mostly for myself to start out with. We've all benefited from it in the same way that readers of the Old Testament benefit from reading Jeremiah or the New Testament by reading the Gospels. I, I do want to get out the notion that a passage that I think really opened up this conversation that I came across, and it's from the new book by Obama and Bruce Springsteen called sure. Renegade. And I think it really broadens the social movement into the whole realm of protest song, the whole realm of Bob Dylan and times there are changing. So the two of them wrote this passage. What makes America exceptional isn't our wealth or size or skyscrapers or military power. It's the fact that America is the only nation in human history that's made up of people of every race, religion, and culture from every corner of the globe. And that we've had faith in our democracy, a common creed, to blend this hodgepodge of humanity into one people. Nothing symbolizes this more than our music and our protest songs. How would you react to that? What do you think of that passage? Mm. I think I go in two directions in response to that passage. In some ways, I disagree with it. This sort of American exceptionalism narrative, that is, it's not surprising that an ex-president and one of the nation's most beloved singers would sort of engage in that. But I actually think that in the criteria they cite, which is racial, ethnic, linguistic diversity, there are several other nations on the planet right now that would be in contention for that distinction. So whenever I hear a, a sort of a myth of the nation state, I'm a little bit skeptical of the kind of work that it's doing. On the other hand, and I think that if I were to point to anything that I love about the United States and about the highest horizon of our politics is that we are trying to create a multiracial democracy. And that is, in the historical record, certainly not unprecedented, but a, a very difficult state of affairs to achieve. I'm reading the new David Graeber book, The Dawn of History, which talks about, a lot about prehistory and ancient civilizations and et cetera, and how varied they were politically and how they rose and fell. And the highest aspiration of this country is to be a place where obviously anyone, regardless of color or creed, can self-actualize. And all of the protests songs and all the movements that backed up those songs are about realizing that dream that arguably the country was founded on, but that we've never achieved. My worry is treating that like a quality we already have rather than the lodestar we're following. And I think that the danger right now is that there's a huge force in this country politically whose end goal is not multiracial democracy. Look to Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin and Marine Le Pen as their examples for the kind of society they want to create. And that society is uh, homogenous and static and exclusionary, if not violent. And that's also part of America. If we deny that that's part of America, that is very, that's like 40% of the country right there has those political leanings. I think it helps your audience for 
you to have those sorts of answers because it's so aware where you stand in history and you know how you have to rally people of diverse backgrounds and diverse educations. And I think what you said so far about helping embed your book in social movements helps a lot. What you meant by the four movements, because you seem to go from loss and outrage into other movements. If you can at least shape that for those who haven't had the chance to read or study your book, it might guide them. Sure. Yeah. So my book is divided into two parts, part one and part two. And in part one, what I'm literally trying to do is name the problem. And for those who haven't read my book, this is not much of a spoiler alert, but I never use the words climate change or climate crisis or any of that. I just refer to something called the problem. But the first part of the book is merely an attempt to wrap my head around the meaning of that problem without falling back on any of the words that sort of flatten it and categorize it before we can really think it through. And then the second part of the book is my attempt in a variety of different directions. And I'm not saying I have the answer to this, but it was sort of a form of play or experimentation. What are frameworks of meaning I can bring to my own life that will lend it joy and beauty, even in the midst of an unprecedented ecological crisis? And how do I balance my responsibility to other people and to the world with my desire to enjoy this one lifespan I've been granted? which is all things from a historical, certainly geological perspective, extremely short. And so that's the kind of question I answer in the end. And the four movements are sort of four little snapshots of my work with climate. The first one documents a giant climate march I helped organize in New York in 2014. The second is a sit-in I helped organize outside Governor Andrew Cuomo's office in 2018. The third describes is what I read from bringing a delegation of Sandy survivors to down to New Orleans for the 10th anniversary of Katrina. So they could share grief and stories and like literal practical knowledge. Like how do you file insurance claim? Like how do you clean up black mold in your, in your kitchen? That they could kind of do that learning work with people who had been through the ringer and Katrina. And then the fourth movement jumps around a little bit, but I actually wrote most of this book in Australia. And the fourth movement describes a walk I took with an Aboriginal mob. That's the term of art in Australia, any large group of people. Anyway, a walk I took of a traditional songline in, in the Northwest of Australia with the indigenous custodians of that land and sort of looking at what it means to have your conception of society, not stop at the human, but extend to rocks and trees and the ocean and hermit crabs and all sorts of other things that could be wrapped up in uh, bonds of social obligation and debt and care. And those sort of little slices of life punctuate the larger text where I transition, looking at the problem, capital T, capital P, to trying to experiment with some potential answers, at least in my own little life. In, in that way, Dan, a brilliant description of what you've accomplished in the 250 pages. Did you think of it more like a musical score than a logical narrative, more like a piece of Brahms? Because it really reads like music to me. That's where in passages of Walden, where he's chasing the loon or when he's thinking about transcendentalism, it's more than just thinking it's beautiful music. So did you think of it as something other than a logical argument. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I use the term movement for two reasons. One, exactly what you're saying, the movements in a piece of music and how a piece of music returns to a theme with variation each time. And I find that my thoughts around the climate crisis are very cyclical and sort of loop back on themselves recursively, but with each new loop, some new texture is added, some new meaning. 
And so in the four movements, I'm trying to capture that. And then it's also, of course, I'm embedded in the social movement and the social movement looks like different things. And then it's just literal movement for discerning readers of the book. They'll see that all four of those movements describe literal marches through the streets of New York, up to the governor's office out to New Orleans, into the Lower Ninth Ward and across the deserts of Northwest Australia. And in that fourth movement, I won't spoil it too much, but I think a lot about like actual physical passage across land and what that does to the brain and body and what that tells us about our relationship to the non-human world. But I mean, if you were to look at my process for writing this book, it was very non-linear. It was very much like the ideas come gushing out the pen. I transfer those ideas onto a bunch of sticky notes. I stick all those sticky notes on the wall of my office. I step back and I rearrange them and I step back and I rearrange them again and try to discern some pattern and some thread that at least will make sense to me, if not the reader. <laughs> I was, it was interesting, the visualization that she did, actually, because my mother is also a painter. She once asked me about writing and she thought it was exactly like this. She says, do put all the pages on the wall. It's strange, but I think it's very helpful because there's not just the words, there's the tone. And there's so many things that come that, that they're physical. So when you speak about the, the movements, it just poses the question, where do we go beyond the protest? So I, I don't know if that's your second book, but you know, how do we actualize? Well, that's the major question. I mean, politically, you can't just protest, right? If you're serious about making change, you have to win power and you have to win hegemonic power to be able to make hegemonic change. And right now, the people that hold hegemonic power in our society are unfortunately, by and large, bought into an old way of doing things. And that old way of doing things is killing my generation, but they can't seem to stop either consciously or unconsciously. And so eventually the point of all of the protests and the campaigning and et cetera is to rest the helm. I mean, to be honest, as a 31 year old, I think I consider myself a young person, although I'm slowly losing my grasp on that designation. But especially I had to give a talk to some high schoolers this morning and I was like, oh my God, all of the most powerful people in this country are over 70. Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Obviously they are arrayed vastly along the political spectrum, but they're uniting factors that they're all just very, very old and they're making decisions that will not only influence, but utterly shape the course of the lives of myself and everybody in my generation, not to mention the generations below me. Ultimately, we're going to have to transition from protest to governance and that and governance will be increasingly difficult because the ecological substrate and the political substrate that you're trying to govern will be more chaotic than it was when I was growing up, just because the climate is being disrupted. And that's a very scary thing. But at its best, governance itself is a creative process, a way of engaging collaborators to create a new work that instantiates a shared vision. Unfortunately, I think we've lost that in large part through our federal government has lost that thread and many of our institutions are broken or at least working at severely loose, reduced capacity. Eventually, we're going to have to rest the helm of those institutions and make them work again, make them creative again. Yes. And also, let's talk about the economic system that we live in now and how we have to adapt it for the Green New Deal. And I, I believe you have views on public-private partnerships. I also believe we have to think more collectivist. Some of my thinking is even a little bit Marxist, but I think in America, sometimes people think of that as a, as a bad word, but I live in a socialist country in France, semi-socialist. Yeah. No, I mean, first of all, Marxist is not a bad word to me. I've read my Marx and Engels and I've read my Das Kapital. And despite the perversions of Stalin and others, the basic thread of Marxist thought makes a lot of sense to me. I do think that capitalism in the ways it allows people who amass great, great amount, great amounts of wealth to likewise amount great amounts of political power. And those two things are almost synonymous, but they need not be. And for them to be synonymous, it's in fact, a very, very scary state of affairs. And that's why our government recently is looking more like an oligarchy than it is a democracy. When you have Joe Manchin, who's bought and sold by the coal industry, writing the most important climate legislation of our generation, something's wrong. It's just like a conflict of interest. So I do think we have to 
move towards. I, I feel like labels around political systems often kind of shrink debate rather than expand it because different people have different alarm bells that go off. I suppose I'd describe myself as a democratic socialist, but mostly I know for one that the patterns of wealth distribution in our society are sick, are truly sick. The fact that Elon Musk can buy Twitter for $44 billion and that many, many people cannot make ends meet in this country, even working two backbreaking jobs, washing dishes or flipping burgers. That's just like a classic sign of civilizational decay, right? If you look back through history. And so something's going to have to give and we're going to have to level the playing field again to address, to enact our highest ideals and our highest vision. And I hope Macron is good on his word. I know he tacked left in the, the election with Marine Le Pen in the, in the final weeks there, but he's a slippery character, certainly better than the alternative. It would be interesting to flesh out how we go from protests to more collective governance. What you want us to take away from it regarding moving from protest to governance. I think you do activate the protest song in me and as a elderly American, and I watched you do it. I know you can reach the youth, but do you have any thoughts about how we move from the action of protest? into political result? I mean, if I had the single answer to that, we, we would be here. We would assault the climate crisis and that's it. But I think that there's a big temptation on the left to eschew electoral politics at writ large. And I think that's a big mistake. I think we have to win at the ballot box and that's a responsibility. It's made very difficult by the fact that we don't have campaign finance laws. So the strategic pathway to win enough of a majority in the Senate to enact campaign finance laws that will allow regular people to run for office in the way that they should in a healthy democracy. I don't completely know how that works, but I know it has to work. I've been thinking a lot recently about the kinds of people, psychologically speaking, that seem to self-select into leadership, political leadership in our country. I do think we need new cultural norms about vetting who our leaders are going to be. Because when it comes to the climate crisis, the past 30 years of federal governance in this country have been an abject failure and a failure of political courage of diligence, of urgency, of incentive structures, et cetera, et cetera. In this book I was reading recently, The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber, he talks a lot about in past societies that were more quote unquote egalitarian than ours, the self-conscious political technologies they use to make sure the right people were holding a leadership role. And by the right people, it meant the people that are naturally going to self-select into a leadership role, especially the higher you get up the totem pole, display signs of megalomania, shamelessness, desire to have attention. Essentially, it, it is a big incentive in our political structure to be a sociopath because then you don't have to worry about guilt or shame or anything. You can just bulldoze right through. And I remember one anecdote specifically about the Hadza tribe or the Hadza people of turn of the century East Africa. Hunter-gatherer group, mostly they would survive on, on hunting big game, water buffalo or elephants. And in some neighboring cultures, if you were a really good hunter, if you brought home the bacon, so to speak, you were venerated, you would amass resources that those resources would give you kingly powers. You would have like a harem of women and then you'd go conquering and pillaging around. And they're really good ethnographies of the Hadza who looked at that political system and self-consciously said, you know, that that is not a good system for us. That is not a good system. And we've seen how the suffering of our neighbors. And so they have a tradition when it, when a really good hunter comes back with a kill from the savannah and um, they kind of like jokingly mock that person. It's like, oh, big man, huh? Oh, buried home the bacon. And that person is kind of, there's a ritual of cutting that person down to size and then distributing the meat exactly equally. And it's a way to ensure that the bases of power don't become self-reinforcing. If somebody is exceptionally charismatic or exceptionally strong or exceptionally violent and domineering and abnormally so, there are actually cultural technology in place to prevent those people from making decisions for everybody else because time and time again it, it is shown that it's actually uh, the 
sort of humble, quiet, thoughtful people who tend to make the best decisions with other people in mind. They still have to have the confidence to lead and make decisions and live with their consequences. But I've been thinking a lot about recently, like how do we start self-selecting better people into leadership? And right now, the incentive, when you think about the material incentive structure for who gets to govern in this country, because we don't have campaign finance reform, you have to be willing to sit on the phone for eight hours a day, calling everybody you know and asking them for money. Most normal people would find that a very uncomfortable, awkward, and probably prohibitively so thing to do. So the people who are self-selecting into our political system are the people who are not only willing, but able to do that and do that successfully. And that I think tends towards a certain kind of personality type that just may be not so great when it starts making decisions for lots of other people. I wanted to go back talking about indigenous societies. And I love to read about these things like the mapping abundance and where you can really see that there is a circular economy in place. But how do we learn from that to bring it to our cities where most of us live? We're living in the century of the city. What are the jobs of the future going to look like? How do we learn from, how do we model ourselves on indigenous society? Mm, that's a very complicated question because when you read this book, it turns out indigenous society is far from a monolith and there were indigenous societies with like a god king who was the descendant of the sun who could slaughter anybody with the snap of his fingers and then egalitarian. But I understand a larger point, which is how do we take the best lessons from people throughout history who have experimented with different political forms than the one we currently have? I think first of all, and Bruce gets at this in some of his own writing, I think monetization and the profit motive are actually a very thin and imperfect way of tracking human value and sorting human value. And they don't map onto it very well. So, you know, a lot of jobs that produce immense social value, whether that's elementary school teachers or nurses or home health care aides for the elderly, which by the way, is one of the largest growth industries by employment in the country and has been for several years because we have such an aging population. Those people can barely make ends meet. And yet they're the glue that holds our society together and their work is very low carbon. So when we think about how we start assigning value, I think the process of valuation is kind of arbitrary and value how we pay people doesn't really track to what they're giving to the whole, but to how much power they've been able to mass. In a sense, you make what you're able to convince, what you're able to kind of, by virtue of your social position, get for yourself rather than you make in proportion to how much value you're giving to the whole. So that's one big lesson I think that I try to take is there's the myth of the pure invisible hands. Adam Smith gets bastardized by a lot of modern thinkers. He was actually much more complicated than people give him credit for. But the bastardization of Adam Smith says that if everybody just like pursues their own self-interest as nakedly and aggressively as possible, that actually leads to the best of all possible results. And as we've seen over a few decades of deregulation in the States, that's not true, that it actually leads to skyrocketing income inequality, which in turn threatens the bedrock of civilization. And that's in reference to Thomas Piketty's work and other economists. So instead, we have to think about, I have a vested interest in helping to weave the social fabric. And how does the work that I do help weave that fabric? And I think if that becomes the mode of valuation, some of the most quote unquote humble jobs will suddenly have a status of veneration. And it's a lot of traditionally female work. And it's a lot of labor that's been, I think, undervalued for centuries in this country. That's one thing. I think the other thing is, and again, this is such a broad brush stroke, but recognizing the value of slowness. There's a huge productivity culture that I totally am susceptible in our country where the value of time is marked by its output. And I think it's a very dangerous game because I think it's actually in our lazier moments in the time where we're walking we're in the shower, we're walking in the woods, or we're just sitting back on the sofa where ideas actually arise and imagination occurs when we're not like super occupied with some other task where we allow our minds to surprise them. And I think that is incredibly also useful for just like human flourishing. 
in time was a central theme of your book. I just think that the climate crisis is compromising our already very compromised relationship to the passage of time as a culture. I was at dinner with somebody the other night where they were describing their hobby of late has been experimenting with different scheduling apps. And they were describing to me this new scheduling app that you put in a task and it tells you if you realistically have enough time to complete that task and like automatically groups your meetings and it suggests all the new meeting times. And in all sorts of ways, it's like dicing and chunking and cutting and splicing and rearranging units of time. And it almost felt like chopping up a corpse, you know, or something. It is a sort of like overly manipulative way to handle time. And and they're much more sort of like capacious ways to inhabit it that I think could be more generative and more humane that I want to get us back in touch with. One of the things I love about your work is its inherent restraint. If you could tell the listeners your debate in the nation between the man who felt it productive to destroy fossil fuel infrastructure and your logic as to why it's important to be more civil in the sense that you wouldn't want the best protesters winding up in prison. I mean, you are advocating a great urgency to address these issues, but you're not advocating violence. So if you could help the person who hasn't had a chance to read your work yet, understand that. Yeah, I mean, so this was a debate article I was asked to write with a Swedish Marxist philosopher named Andreas Malm, who wrote a book recently that some of you may have heard of called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which was an argument less about how to blow up a pipeline than why to blow up a pipeline, making the case that the climate movement, because our national governments are failing to act so abysmally, should start embracing property destruction and sabotage of pipelines. And I think my response to that was twofold. One, that if I was convinced it would work, i.e. if I was convinced it would bring down overall global CO2 emissions, then I think the moral case for it, that course of action is very strong. I don't think there's anything inherently immoral about blowing up a pipeline if it's going to save millions of lives. Absolutely not. I mean, I think violence to property is a very, very different thing than violence to human lives. The latter, I think, is almost never justified, except in cases of obvious self-defense. But then I go on to examine, okay, well, what would the political consequences of that action be? It would be an absolute gift to Tucker Carlson, because then he gets to leave right. climate movement as as environmental terrorists and Biden backs away from the issue. And I think the most likely chain of events is actually counterproductive to the aim of the protest. So what I'm saying, there's an inherent set of actions that is civil versus uncivil. When Gandhi spoke about nonviolence, for instance, he didn't speak about it as a moral thing, as if the British are killing us, the colonialists are killing us. He didn't argue that it's wrong to kill them back. What he argued is that it's ineffective, that when they have the monopoly on violence and on guns, the most effective thing is to be nonviolent, is to stand there passively and elicit the violence out of the system, expose it in the light of day, and then subject it to the public will and public opinion. And so I still believe in that principle. But as I say at the end of that piece, I mean, the longer our government fails to rein in the fossil fuel industry and is subject to its whims and policy make, I think the closer many young people are going to get to feeling like they have no other choice. I think it's really interesting, Dan, that Henry David Thoreau writes civil disobedience in 1842, maybe five or six years before he goes into a retreat at Walden and then writes the beautiful Walden. And just comically at Thoreau's journals, where he says, I now have 3,000 books on my home library shelf, 2,000 of which I wrote myself, because Walden did not sell very well. So the publisher moved them all. And, and now we think of this book as starting the notion of civil disobedience. I think 
there's a passage in it that I'd like to confess that I've always believed where he talks about the resistant power of an informed minority, that if you stick your finger or hand into the machinery of injustice, an informed minority can actually help the world. I think that's where your work is going. Is that where you're at essentially? Oh, absolutely. I mean, of all the organizing cliches, the one about a small band of committed people being able to change the world, in fact, it's the only thing it ever has, that in my experience has borne out enormously. I just finished sort of a six-month sprint organizing a bunch of rallies around the country to start to try to prompt the Biden administration to restart negotiations around this reconciliation bill that may still include half a trillion dollars worth of clean energy investment, which would be the most important climate legislation ever passed in the history of the world. We had events in over 100 cities and a couple thousand people in Washington. and It wasn't everything I wanted it to be, but it was something thrown together in six weeks with a small band of committed people. And we had a couple stories in the Post, in the New York Times, et cetera. And it's scary sometimes, actually, once you try to start influencing these systems, how few people are actually in the room deliberating over these decisions. And so I totally believe, I think what's scarier to me, I think there's sometimes this feeling among people of my generation and younger, a feeling of powerlessness. And I totally get that. I mean, when we watch mansions steamroll our, our interests as generations, it's just, a, it's like a moral violence to watch that happen. We want to thank you for your work because you're the one who's helping us keep the forward momentum. And I do think there are others that will follow you. As you think of the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what would you like them to know, preserve, and remember? I guess I would like them to know that even in a time of crisis, there were always still people, even potentially the majority of people, who are trying to bushwhack their way towards a joyous and meaningful life. And that that pursuit is sort of indomitable in humankind and that it will never stop regardless of how chaotic things will get. And that basic bending towards the light will never stop. And I'm very grateful for that. Well, we're grateful for you. And thank you, Daniel Sherrill, for helping us understand the problem, our crises, create solutions, and move in a positive direction towards a more sustainable and just society. Thank you for adding your voice to Business and Society and One Planet podcast. Thanks so much, both of you. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Marley Hinchberger. Digital Media Coordinator was Sophie Garnier. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.